Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. Today, Caroline and I are going to talk about something that many listeners have requested for a while. Just pops up. Women in science. 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 How they blinded us. Yes. I wish we were wearing lab coats for this episode. How do the listeners know we're not? True. Mm -hmm. Imagine that, listeners. (laughs) We are in lab coats with beakers on the table. Because we're Mm going to talk about science today. Because women in science, although they are getting more attention these days, still there is a gap. Right. And actually, the Independent Women's Forum, uh, a research and educational institution, blames it on innate differences in aptitudes, temperament and interests between men and women. Basically, it kind of sounds like the stereotype of like, well, women just aren't good at science and math. Verbal. Mm. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they claim that the gender gap in STEM, which is science, technology, engineering and math, mathematics, Mm -hmm. STEM courses, um, have to do with these brain differences. And one of the very first, I think it might be the very first episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You was on whether or not men and women have different brains. So you can go back and listen to that if you'd like after this podcast. Um, but at the same time, women are are good at science and math. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, in all this reading we did for this podcast, a lot of the sources say that the numbers of men and women interested in science and pursuing science in high school and college are about the same. It's There's not a huge difference. It's, it's not until after graduation when maybe it's time to pursue a career, take your career a little further, that the numbers start to skew a little. Right. Um, this is coming from the National Science Foundation. In 2006, of students who enroll in graduate courses in science or engineering are women. So obviously, while our brains might work a little bit differently, obviously women do just fine in STEM courses. But like you said, Caroline, once they get into the real world, those numbers start to drop because between 2000 and 2005, only 27% of women were employed out of school and employed in the computer field, a leading employer of science and engineering grads. Yeah, and numbers numbers have jumped. They've mm-hmm. they've gotten better for sure. Um one percent I found was that uh the percent of doctoral degrees awarded to women in engineering, uh in nineteen seventy it was one percent. Mm-hmm. And in two thousand one that jumped to eighteen percent. So I feel like more women are, you know, maybe sticking with it in school at least. And if women stick with it, it will pay off Literally, this is a new from a new report uh, that came out in August from the U.S. Commerce Department. That's been it's this part of a series of reports actually that they've been doing on women and STEM, exploring why this gender gap exists because they want more. The government wants more women to pursue STEM courses, not only in college but also beyond, like somehow closing off that that exit ramp that seems to be happening. And science pays because women in STEM jobs right now earn 33% more than women in non-STEM jobs. God, I wish physics had made sense. I know. Why aren't we chemists? I just didn't understand chemistry at all. And in addition, the gender pay gap in STEM industries 
narrower than than in non-STEM. Sounds good to me. Yeah. So the the money's there, yeah. although the gender wage gap still exists. <laughs> <laughs> but the point of this episode today is talk about women in science because they exist. They do. And lack of role models is one reason that some people offer for the STEM gender gap. But we are going to we're going to offer out some offer up some role models today. Yeah. And not ones that you may have heard of before. Right. Well, there- although let's start with what we've heard of. <laughs> There are some good ones out there that, that people have heard of. There's Marie Curie. Yes. Who, she had a pretty steady rise up the science ladder. Mm-hmm. She has pretty much always been amazing. Yeah. And she won the <laughs> Nobel Prize in Physics in 1903. And then, for a second time, she won a Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Oh, yeah. In 1911. Oh, yeah, Grandma. <laughs> um, I do have a book recommendation, too. It's one that I have not read yet, but I've heard an interview with the author, and it sounds fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's called Radioactive, Marie and Pierre Curie. A Tale of Love and Fallout by Lauren Redness. Good title. I know. Maybe that'll be my fall reading. Yeah. Um, I wanted to mention Ada Byron, mm-hmm. known as Lady Lovelace, and also daughter of poet Lord Byron. She, in 1843, developed what is regarded as the first ever computer program. Yes. Hmm. Well, there is, there's another scientist more recent who I just want to hug. I've always loved this woman. Jane Goodall. Yes. We've all, we've all heard about her and the chimpanzees. She went to Tanzania as a 23 year old to observe how chim- chimpanzees interacted. Basically, she took along a notebook and binoculars yeah. and she managed to make all these incredible discoveries. And then, of course, we got to mention, uh, Sally Ride, who we talked about in our episode on astronauts. The first woman in space. First American woman, American woman. American in space. woman. That's right. Yeah. I'm sorry. No harm. (laughs) Um, And she is a physics professor at the University of California, San Diego, and then became director of California's Space Institute. Yeah. And she's written children's books about science, get the kids interested. And her um, company, Sally Ride Science, seeks to motivate girls to pursue careers in STEM fields. Yeah. So she would enjoy this episode. She would. (laughs) Sally Ride would be on board with what we're talking about. Mustang Sally. Hey, if you're out there. (laughs) Um. But like I said, the point of today's podcast is to offer out some names that listeners might not have heard of before. Right. Some women who changed our world. Yes. Affected science for the better. But, you know, maybe you don't know their names. Uh, there's Rosalind Elsie Franklin. She's a molecular biologist. Uh, she started out at an all-girls school in London, one of the few to actually offer physics and chemistry courses. Yeah. And the reason why you might not have heard of Rosalind Franklin's name is because Two guys by the name of James D. Watson and Francis Crick stole her thunder. Yeah, absolutely. Beat her to the punch. She did all this work on uh, X-ray diffraction techniques. So she worked in Paris for a while, and after returning to England in 1951, she worked at a lab where she encountered Maurice Wilkins. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, Maurice Wilkins thought she was a, an assistant yeah. in the lab, and because he, she was a woman. Yeah, naturally, you know, she was carrying martinis around or something. I don't know. I don't know why. Anyway, he found her X-ray images and showed them to James Watson and Francis Crick. Yes, because Wilkins, Crick, and Watson were all working on um, unraveling the structure of DNA, and Rosalind Franklin had taken these amazing x-ray photographs of DNA, quote, the most beautiful x-ray photographs of any substance ever taken, uh, one scientist quoted. And 
so they showed showed the guys these incredible images of DNA and and yeah, they and then they won the double helix. <laughs> they won the Nobel Prize in 1962. Thanks, guys. And she, um, well, one of the reasons too, they think that that her work has not been more widely recognized as such a major contribution to understanding the structure of DNA. It's because soon after all of that went down, she got really sick. Yeah, she got ovarian cancer and died at 37, 38, yeah. very young, very yeah. young. Uh, so Rosalind Franklin, slowly but surely, I think there's been more, more spotlight on her, on her work, but definitely mm-hmm. a female scientist who deserves a lot of credit. Uh, and then we have Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkin, the founder of protein crystallography. Yeah. Um, basically crystallography is x-rays that can determine the arrangement of atoms. And she and her mentor applied this X-ray diffraction to crystals of biological substances. And I want to say that her mentor, J.D. Bernal, is the person who said, uh, who referred to Rosalind Franklin's X-ray photography as the most most beautiful of DNA. Good to see people supporting women in science. Exactly. Yeah, because a lot of these women, as they're as they're growing up and pursuing these scientific fields, are either discouraged by their parents, especially their fathers, mm-hmm. are discouraged by male colleagues mm-hmm. or aren't paid for their work. Right. Like one woman we'll talk about in a little bit was never paid yeah. for most of her work. And and yet became a Nobel Nobel Prize winner. Like you do. But back to Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkin. Mm-hmm. Um, her contributions included solutions to structures of things uh, by being able to see what they look like using the crystallography. Uh, so seeing the structure of things like cholesterol, penicillin, which earned her an election as a fellow of the Royal Society in 1947. And she won her Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1947 for seeing the structure of, or I guess unraveling the structure of vitamin B12. Right. And then there was insulin. That was her major project. Um, she worked on it for 34 years, actually found the insulin structure in 1969 mm-hmm. and went back and reevaluated in 1988 with the help of computers. And it makes sense that Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkin, I really like her whole name. That's why I, I keep saying it. Uh, that, that Dorothy was such a genius because she came from, from quite a family. Her dad was an archaeologist in Egypt and her mom was an expert on Coptic tiles and she married an expert in African studies. I would absolutely go to their dinner party. I know. I wouldn't be able to keep up with anything they said, but I would just sit there with my mouth wide open sit, listening. Sit and nod with, yeah. a, with a smile on your face. Uh, and then at the age of 80, she finally got a visa and traveled to the U.S. giving talks to standing room only crowds about insulin crystallography and its future. Mm-hmm. So these women... Still working yeah. in, in old age. Mm-hmm. Uh, but next up is perhaps one of those underappreciated or at least underpaid mm-hmm. scientists that we talk about today. Maria Geppert Mayer. Yeah, she came, she also came from a very educated, uh, family. And, and, you know, as opposed to some of the other people we've talked about, you know, their fathers discouraged them, mm-hmm. didn't think a woman should go out and get an education, especially in science. It was actually sort of, uh, understood that she would go to university. Um, she actually, her social circle included physicists Niels Bohr and Max Born. And she started out actually as a mathematician in school, but turned her focus to physics. So somehow, to me, hearing that, it seems like somehow her brain got even smarter. Yeah, I know, because, whoa. <laughs> I can do I can do math. I, I was fine with math in school, but physics and I did not get along. No. At all. No. So Maria Geppert Mayer, you... On a genius. Um, but 
Listen to this story. So she comes to the U.S. with her husband, also a physicist, and continues her research even though she's not being paid for it. Right. And while, quote unquote, you know, unemployed, she went on to produce 10 papers and a textbook. And a physics textbook. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I guess if I was unemployed, I could do a lot of cool things, too. <laughs> uh, not anything to do with physics, but still. <laughs> but she was working with her husband and collaborating with another physics professor, became a chemical physics, and then figured out, oh, I don't know, the color of organic molecules. Sure. Why not? She went on. Uh, they moved to Chicago. And I think she was more welcome there. She actually, mm-hmm. I think, got a paycheck at some point in Chicago. Uh, she worked at, uh, she was a professor in the physics department and in the Institute for Nuclear Studies and also worked at the Argonne National Laboratory. Yeah, but she did not secure full-time paid work in her field until she was 53 years yeah, old. Yeah, can you imagine? At that time, I'm like winding down. I'm ready to go live on a yacht somewhere, <laughs> you know, retire with my... Keep podcasting. You'll, you'll definitely get that yacht. <laughs> um but then uh, she won the Nobel Prize in 1963, and the headline in the San Diego paper read, SD, San Diego, mother wins a Nobel Prize. I mean, really? Even we, still. We can't just give her a little bit of credit for actually being a scientist in her own right. Um, but she developed a nuclear shell model of atomic nuclei. So that essentially figures out what what atomic nuclei the outside of them looks like. It's there's something to do with magic numbers, which I could not fully explain to you, Uh, listeners, if you have any clues to what it is. Oh, yeah. Well, that those represent the numbers of protons and neutrons arranged in (laughs) shells in the atoms nucleus. Thanks, Kristen. (laughs) That's not from my notes. No, not at all. At all. How? (laughs) You have a broad knowledge of things. Um Moving on, I, I, I like to save the best for last. Not, not that all these women are. You've been excited about I've this. I've been so excited yeah. about this woman. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I want you after the podcast, after you listen to this, or, or while you're listening, you know, if you're on your computer anyway, Google Rita <laughs> Levi Montalcini. She's still alive. She is a brain scientist who also happens to be the oldest living Nobel laureate. The woman, okay, have you, if, you know, Ghostbusters, when they go to the basement of the library uh-huh. and there's that, um, there's that ghost, that librarian ghost. Mm-hmm. That's what she dresses like. She looks so, she's very spiffy. Well, she's very spiffy. We'll let, we'll let listeners Google image here because yeah. she really does look incredible. She has an amazing quaff of shockingly white hair. Yeah. And hair. this, this woman, she's incredible. She, uh, her work with Stanley Cohen led to a breakthrough in neurological science. For the discovery of nerve growth factor, a discovery that she says is the highlight of her life. And nerve growth growth factor is a protein that basically stimulates neural development um, and promotes nerve cell growth. Right. Um, she won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1986 at the age of 77. She's no slouch. Yeah, she, and she was not living on a yacht. How old is she now? 102, 103? 102. She's still going. Yeah. yeah. She founded the European Brain Research Institute and still goes to work every day. Yeah, she still goes. She encourages her students. And while she admitted that, yes, she does encourage a lot of the female science students, she doesn't really see a difference between men and women. Especially in their brains. Obviously, right. her, her expertise is in neurology. Mm-hmm. And she was quoted in the Times of London saying that, she really sees absolutely no difference between male and female brains and attributes a lot of our behavior to environment. And again, it's, it's nature, nurture, 
types right. of debates. Well, in the Times, she also is quoted as saying that we're all doomed. Right. Um, because in all of her years of brain research, you know, she talks about the two hemispheres of the brain. One, quote unquote, ancient mm-hmm. rules, our emotions and instincts. The other one is more modern, where we use rational thought to, to figure out our problems. And she says that the world's problems today, uh, terrorism, fundamentalism, et cetera, can be blamed on people using their ancient emotional instinctual brain too often. So we've become too emotionally driven. Right. And are driving ourselves crazy. Yeah, listen to this quote. She says, It was the part of our brains which got us down from trees, but it is the cause of all the disasters and the cause of great danger to our planet today. It is taking the human race toward extinction. The end is already at hand. Oh, my. Yeah, that sounds a little Rita. scary. I know. Rita's, Rita's freaking me out. But she, uh, I, I also like her key to longevity, mm-hmm. which is really never sleeping and only eating one meal a day. She eats she eats at lunch and she says maybe an orange or a bowl of soup in the evening, but that's it. And yeah, she, she says works sleep a lot. and food don't interest her. Yeah. I, I would not I would be so cranky. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't know how my I, I need food to for my brain to work better. I know. But I mean I'm saying this about a brain expert, so maybe she knows something. She that we oh, well she's she's hundred and two. Yeah. She's figured something out. I guess I'm just going to have to sacrifice longevity for, for a cheeseburger. Seeing that she won a Nobel Prize, she's probably figured a lot of things out. <laughs> <Yeah>. Couple. <laughs> and she was also never married. She yeah, had enough she, time. Exactly. The the same father who did not want her to pursue science education, uh, she saw as dominating the family. Mm-hmm. And she said she didn't want to play second fiddle to a man. So yeah. she never married. Yeah, she said that really the only difference between men and women is that our while our brains are exactly the same, men have just been able to physically overpower women. Mm-hmm. Another podcast for another time. Indeed. So we've talked about these four and obviously there are so many more mm-hmm. and I would invite listeners to send in um, any, any female scientists they'd like us to highlight in later episodes in the listener mail segments. But before we sign off, the question is how do we, how do we support women in science better? Right. You talked about role models earlier. And uh, in a column that appeared in The Guardian in July, doctors Natalie Petarelli and I hope I don't butcher this woman's name, Syrian, like Syrian Sumner, say that the problem isn't necessarily attracting girls and women to scientific fields. It's just keeping them there, which, you know, we touched on earlier. Uh, they attribute this to sort of a, a disconnect between um, men and women family life. Mm-hmm. women are sort of more expected, they argue, to make compromises as far as career and, and family is concerned. Yeah, it's that off-ramp. And especially if they're in academia, I can understand that it probably would be a challenge to try to, you know, chase down tenure, publishing papers, constantly doing research in addition to teaching. Obviously, academia is but one small part of what you can do in STEM fields, but that might be another part, even mm-hmm. just educating women about all of the opportunities available to them that, listen up, pay that 33% more than non-STEM fields. Yeah. I don't think I would be successful. But hey, okay. you know what, Caroline, stop buying into the stereotype <laughs> threat. Okay. I don't know. You... It's been 27 years of <laughs> of not being good at science, but you know, hey, whatever. That's okay. I guess we can learn. And... 
There are organizations out there like the Association for Women in Science, which was founded in 1971 to fight for equity in in STEM and close that gender gap. Mm -hmm. But over and over again, the research has shown that the change probably needs to happen in the classrooms early on. Right. Um, we've talked about gender roles, gender stereotypes, and priming before. Mm-hmm. Um, the American Association of University Women released a report in 2010 that said women are shaped by their learning environments. They found that when teachers before a test said that boys and girls perform equally on math tests, the girls did better. Mm-hmm. They, they did perform more equally. Mm-hmm. So encourage girls to do better. Yeah, break down, break down the stereotypes. Because if half of those STEM degrees are going to women, obviously we can do just fine yeah. in science and math. So mm-hmm. anyway, female scientists out there, I know that there are a lot of you listening because a lot of you have emailed in requesting this topic. Let us know what, what do you think about being a woman in science? Other female scientists that we should toss out there. Yeah. And did anything. anyone try to discourage you from pursuing yeah. a scientific career? I mean, I know a lot of these women we talked about whose families discouraged them were from way back when. But I mean, did your family look at you cross-eyed when you said you didn't want to go after an English degree? You wanted to be a scientist? Scientist. Let us know. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And we got a couple emails here in response to our two podcasts exploring gender and height, one from a man and Ooh. one from a woman. Who would you like to hear from first, Caroline? Ladies first? That's ladies first. Sure. This comes from Diana, and she says, I'm 5'11", so I get remarks about my height a lot. I'm a teller at a bank, but we're provided with high stools to sit on while we work. They boost up the shorter tellers, but they make me shorter, so I always stand when people are at my window. People say, you must be on a step stool back there. I just smile and say, no, I'm really this tall. My husband is 6'3", so I'm looking forward to having tall children. In my dating experience, I've found that some men are intimidated by tall women. I am white, but white men have never approached me. I had a white male coworker tell me once, you're pretty, you're just too tall. However, height doesn't seem to bother men of other races. Hmm, That's an interesting observation. It is interesting. Um, Adam writes to us about height as well. He says that he is over six feet. And I was wondering why you didn't address the giant stereotype with tall men. Although short men are viewed as more aggressive, tall men have negative views associated with them. As evidenced in David and Goliath, Jack and the Beanstalk, and Of Mice and Men. Men of stature have been throughout history and literature viewed as intimidating, awkward, and a tad dumb and sometimes arrogant like a bully. I know this is better than being viewed like Joe Pesci characters for being short. I still find I have to contend with stereotypes and on occasion risk being turned down for something in favor of someone viewed as more of an underdog. Hmm. Hmm. Giant stereotype. Yeah, I mean, there's on either side of the spectrum, if you're extremely tall or extremely short, I can imagine that there are, are you know, stereotypes aplenty. Sure. So if you have any thoughts to send our way, again, our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also head over to Facebook, find us there, and also follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And lastly, during the week, you can read the blog. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. 
Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?